Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode of the podcast, we have another lecture from our recent Theopolitan Ministry Conference. This lecture is on the passing of the peace and the holy kiss from Father Mark Bryans. At the end of our daily matin services during Theopolis courses and conferences, we pass the peace with one another. And here, Father Mark will give a biblical and typological explanation of why we do that practice. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is Father Mark Bryans discussing the Holy Kiss. Almighty Father, you said that you would not share your glory with another. We are not another. We are your beloved, and you have set your name and your seal upon us. We are your sheep and the body of your Son. We are the temple of your Spirit. We are your glory. And Lord, we pray in this place, with what I'm going to share, that you would glorify the name of your Son, Jesus, among us. And that it would break out uh, in Birmingham to the churches that are represented here, and to the ends of the earth. And now with the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts gathered up together, be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Since we're talking about kissing, I'll need you to grab a partner. No, I'm just kidding. Those of you that were here at all this conference, uh, even if it's your first time, we've now had enough matins services to know that When we pass the kiss of peace, we really pass a real kiss. And I remember my first time at Theopolis, uh, sitting, I had come in sort of late, and I was sitting by my friend, Father Blake, and we were, uh, I think it was Vespers maybe, or, I don't know, sometime, and he uh, looks, you know, and they had a Q&A, and they were talking about, somebody asked about the kiss of peace, and everybody's kind of laughing, and new marks, like, ha ha, that's a joke, you know, it's fine. And then... uh, we get to the Vesper service, and Blake quickly looks over at me. He's like, oh, yeah, now, now we greet each other with a kiss. And then he kisses me, right? And you're kind of, it is overwhelming. It's uh, not what we normally do, uh, especially in Anglicanism. Uh, and then yet, for the rest of my fellows program, for a decalogue of days, every matins and sext and Vespers, greeting my fellows and the faculty at Theopolis with a holy kiss uh, was not weird. It feels weird to say, but it wasn't weird. It became a new way of living and relating to one another. Uh, spending 10 days, sometimes awkwardly getting a mouthful of Dodds's beard, sometimes uh, wishing that one of my fellows had worn more deodorant, sometimes uh, having a fellow that put on too much deodorant and then carrying that with me into the service uh, was a really embodied way of realizing, man, uh, what happens when I share uh, the kiss of peace with my brothers in Christ, I get them on me. I leave a portion of me on them. And then I carry them with me into the prayer of the church. And so coming, that stopped feeling weird. What felt weird was coming home to Honolulu and having the first passing of the peace marked by the extension of a handshake, which is a gesture that enforces distance. That was weird. At best, if not hypocritical, at worst. I share this anecdote precisely because I believe it is truly illuminative for two things 
in our current sort of civilizational moment. First, it highlights the intense life and joy that living according to the biblical world, which is God's world, which is this world, right? Here, theologians talk about, well, in the biblical world, this is the biblical world, right? It highlights the intense joy and life that come from living rightly in God's world with the things he's commanded us to do. I'll argue here that uh, God made the kiss. God is the one who kisses. And he is himself, in the incarnation of our Lord, the kiss of heaven and earth. He is also the object of kissing. He came down with a body born of the Virgin Mary that is kissable. We could maybe, before the incarnation, conceive of kissing the Son in Psalm 2, in the abstract. We can now no longer do theology in the abstract about kissing the person of Jesus. Secondly, I share this antidote because it highlights the cultural and exegetical trouble we have with living in God's world. We share the kiss of peace here, and yet, unless I'm the only one, I don't think I am, we're going to go home to parishes that don't. And explaining to fellow elders or vestry members or church board members or even our spouses that we just spent two days sharing a kiss of peace with everybody else gets a knee-jerk reaction that we ourselves, if we had not been here, would also respond with, what? Ah, ooh, gross, yuck, right? We have an exegetical and cultural knee-jerk reaction to not obey Romans 16, 16, and other verses. We're irked when some youngish, hippie Anglican guy from Hawaii comes here to tell us about how we're supposed to kiss more often in church. That very irksomeness exposes the trouble we have with the way God, who is the origin of kissing, created it and commanded us to do it. And just as a way of saying, I'm going to talk a lot about the kiss of peace, sharing a holy kiss, um, sort of interchangeably, and both of those terms for me mean both the liturgical practice of greeting your brothers and sisters in Christ in the sanctuary of God with a holy kiss of peace, and also that all of the rest of our kissing, all the rest of our lives lies downstream from the sanctuary, and that the way that I kiss outside of God's holy temple should be informed by the kiss of peace that we share in his house. First, I'll look at cultural trouble. The practice of sharing a holy kiss was common in the ancient church. Both, we see it in the uh, epistles in scripture, but we also see it in the record of the church. Uh, it's all throughout Augustine, Chrysostom, uh, Cyril of Alexandria, just to name a few. It's in the Shepherd of Hermas. There's, there's testimony that it wasn't just a Pauline thing. It was a Christian thing. A holy kiss was shared in the Eucharistic rite. Though different liturgies place it differently, it always happened before what we call the sursum corda, before we say, lift up your hearts, and we approach the table of God. The holy kiss was reserved for the baptized. During a baptism service, the bishop would begin the baptism service by sharing the kiss of peace to the new convert before baptizing them, signifying that they are now one in the Spirit as brothers in Christ. A holy kiss was shared by bride and groom, not only in their nuptials, but also as a sign of affection in marriage, which is a symbol of Christ in the church. A holy kiss was shared among believers as a greeting, a 
public display proclaiming their unity. Certain moments in the history of the church, publicly declaring that Christ made you one with your brother was a politically dangerous act. A holy kiss was shared by Christian citizens and their monarchs. The only place in uh, the, the Western church up until, well, we'll talk about this in a second, for a good portion of its history, the only place where the kiss of peace was absent was in the liturgies for Maundy Thursday, where the church suspended the kiss of peace in tragic, lamentful memory of Judas's kiss. Slowly, however, the practice was abandoned. There's no uh, firm, fixed date. There's no decree sort of uh, redacting it from Christian practice. It did not happen at once. It was replaced in various ways. In a lot of uh, northern Europe, it was replaced by having a pax breed or a pax board, which was a symbol of Christ that you, instead of kissing one another, you kissed uh, the image of Christ on the board. That has all of its problems as well. Who kisses it first, right? Well, the mayor does, and the mayor's wife does, and then the person that she's having an affair does, and the mayor gets mad at him, right? There's all these records of fights breaking out in the middle of communion over the kissing of the pax board. Or it became, for other liturgies, strictly a clerical kiss, strictly something that the clergy shared, in the same way that the clergy, for a good part of the Middle Ages, were the only ones to receive Holy Communion. Or the replacement of it, as we see now, by a mere handshake, while ignoring the uh, osculatory, the kissful uh, parts of it. You may ask, well, Father Mark, the dates may not be exact, but can you give us a general idea of the timeline we're talking about? Yeah, I can give you a general idea. We stopped passing the kiss of peace as Christians in the centuries leading up to and immediately following the Great Schism. And that is not meaningless. We stopped sharing. We stopped greeting one another with the kiss of peace in the centuries leading up to and immediately following the Great Division of Christ's church. Once we had only rejected the holy kiss once a year, remember Maundy Thursday was the one time it was suspended in memory of the kiss of Judas. For Craig Koslowski, this year-round and almost universal omission of the kiss of peace proclaims liturgically that all kisses are in fact nothing more than Judas kisses. We are living in a perpetual Maundy Thursday for a thousand years. They do not belong among God's people. Kissing is transgressive. If I was a braver and more well-studied man, I might go so far as to say that one could probably trace strands of the sexual revolution back to when the church stopped sharing the kiss of peace because the church is the head and not the tail. This is something of a Theopolitan platitude, right? What happens in the sanctuary flows out to the world. The church stops sharing the kiss of peace. The kiss of peace stops being the defining kiss for Western culture and, be, and therefore opens itself up to definition by all kinds of other symbols. The holy kiss, the Eucharistic kiss, begins in the sanctuary and changes the way that we kiss out in the world. And so this cultural mess undergirds or buttresses our exegetical problems when we come to kissing in Scripture large or even just the five unique places in the New Testament where we're commanded to do it. 
And so I imagine that a lot of people, for instance, a lot of people in this room, a lot of faithful, Bible-believing, Orthodox followers of Christ come to strange passages of the Bible with bravery. We do. We say, this is what the Bible says. We must follow it. Jesus really did rise again in bodily form from the grave. That's weird, I know. But it's this, it, the Bible says it. I'm going to be brave about this. Uh, we really believe there's something mysterious and real about Holy Communion. We really, many of us believe that there's something real and effective that happens at baptism. We believe these funny, weird, goofy things. We believe that creation was, really did happen in seven days. Those of us that are faithful. Um, <clears throat> we believe all these funny things, and yet when it comes to the, Paul says, pass the kiss of peace. We go, well, Paul was just a man of his culture. Right? We all become historical critical scholars for a moment. <laughs> and we do this with all the other kisses. For example, think about the way that exegetes have treated Song of Songs 1-2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Exegetes and theologians for the last 1,000 years, from around the time we stopped sharing the kiss of peace, struggled to believe that what is said in Song of Songs 1-2 can apply to both my marriage and to the church's theology about her Savior. What they agree on is that it can't do both. So also when Joseph kisses his brothers, when Jonathan kisses David, when Absalom kisses his followers, when Simon the leper does not kiss Jesus... When we see all these, we go, I, I, don't, I don't think these are related at all. Ah, the Bible doesn't really talk about kissing, which is just a euphemism for admitting that we're will, willfully ignoring uh, the great sort of symbolic act of affection and unity in Scripture. So it's like, sure, we kiss here at Theopolis, but what I want to do is think theologically about this weird thing in the hopes that it's, it's become something other than this subversive underground thing that Theopolitans do, uh, and return to the Western church in her life. I want to do two things. I want to kind of sketch an anatomy of a kiss. What is, what is a kiss biblically? And then I want to turn and, and look at the way that we can uh, then approach the kisses that occur in Scripture uh, typologically, both in what they do to uh, help us understand Scripture in how they help us understand who our Lord is, and in how they help us uh, then be people who kiss ourselves. Not kiss ourselves, but kiss, kiss in our own lives. <laughs> First, biblical kissing affects a kind of union, a oneness. What a kiss does is it makes us one. So for instance, Genesis 29, 11, when Jacob greets Rachel, he kisses her, and this is before we're told in Genesis that he loves her. He kisses her, because he realizes that she's of his family, that they're one, that their lineage and their family is one. The eschatological union of heaven and earth, righteousness and peace, in Psalm 85.10, have come together, and it says they have kissed, and we need to let the text be clear. It's not like they've kissed. Heaven and earth have kissed. Righteousness and, justice have, uh, righteousness and peace have kissed. It's interesting, too, that kiss can become uh, an adjective or a verb uh, from that same root in Hebrew. So, for instance, 2 Chronicles 17, 17. The men of Benjamin who march with Eliada, Eliada, you can correct me later. Uh, the men of Benjamin who march with Eliada, it says, they, uh, uh, the Giborim uh, are kissed 
with shield and bow. Our translations render it, and they all came marched or dressed uh, with shield and bow, but the Hebrew is they were kissed. What does it mean? They're men, they're men of war. They're like one with their shield and bow. They're like extensions of themselves. The same is said of the wings of the living creatures in Ezekiel 3. And when the wings of the cherubim, seraphim touch, thunder breaks out. The Hebrew is when the wings kiss, thunder, noise erupts. A thunderous noise, worshipful Shekinah breaks out when the living creatures' wings osculate. When they are one in their beating, heaven is filled with the sound of drumming majesty. Uh, in my mind, there's, uh, this reminds me of the music of uh, Olivier Messiaen, and I just want to say for a second that the title, as I was writing this, I thought to myself, uh, the, the title, The Osculation of the Wings of the Living Creatures, a dithyramb in five mu- movements based on the music of Olivier Messiaen by John O'Hearn, uh, would make a really good first Theopolis production, right? Starring uh, Sean Bean as Alistair Roberts. <clears throat> Second, biblical kissing involve lips, and lips in Scripture are the place where we speak, which relates to words. In Genesis 1-3, we are told that God speaks His living word and brings forth the heavens. This is what Hebrews 11 reminds us of. When we kiss, we take our word-making organ. We open the gateway between our inner and outer world. When we place our lips on the one we kiss, it is a speech act. A kiss is a word. It is a sign. It is effective action which performs what it signifies. This is why, and I'm, I'm straight up plagiarizing Jim Jordan here. This is why in Genesis 11, the Hebrew is clear, the men at Babel were not of one language. They were all of one lip. They were all of one union with their, uh, with their fealty, their kissing, their Uh, uh, their oneness together signified by their lips. This is the world of Isaiah 29, 13. These people honor me with their lips and their hearts are far from me. And so the prophet Zephaniah declares Yahweh's promise to restore his people pure hearts. No, pure lips. Isaiah 6, he sees the Lord and the angel comes to purify him and takes a coal from heaven's brazier and puts it on his lips. And this connection between language and speech and lips and kissing still remains even in our culture. We say, for instance, if you hear your child say a bad four-letter word, you go, hey, do you kiss your mother with that mouth? Right? Kissing language, still connected. Uh, Next, uh, kissing brings together breath and life, a sharing of life. Kissing is mingling of our breaths. I follow St. Augustine in reading the creation of Adam, as a mouth-to-mouth experience. God grabs Adam out of the dust and he breathes into him. This is the uh, sort of initiatory kiss. God kisses us to life. Life is bestowed on us with a kiss. Augustine also reads John 20, receive the Holy Spirit and Christ breathes on them as uh, as a kind of osculation, as a kiss. Preaching on this, Augustine says, that same spirit, the apostle says, uh, quoting from Romans 8 through 9, If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. It was also the same Spirit that the Lord gave his disciples when he breathed, the Latin insuflavit, on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. For he in some way placed his mouth to their mouth when he gave them the Spirit by breathing on them. End quote. 
So this connection between life and breath is repeated all throughout the scriptures. I think there's something to be said for the connection between the kiss in the Song of Solomon and the bride's cry in chapter 4. Let the winds come in, the, the breath, the winds blow upon my garden. Next, kip, uh, the kiss connects mouth and food. Mouth and lips are not only speaking and breathing things. They are eating things. They are consumptive things. Insofar as kissing is a kind of sharing of life, it is also a kind of feasting. You read this in romance poetry. I hunger for your kisses. Feed me with your kisses, right? To put it plainly, in a kiss, a proper, just classical kiss, I take the beginning of um, all of my digestive person, and I connect it with yours, and we share life together. My life for yours, your life for mine. The romance of the song highlights this. The lovers feast and drink and imbibe and delight in one another. The beloved's mouth, the bride tells us, tastes of apples and milk and honey are under the tongue. Eating is central to our story. We've, we fell by eating. We are redeemed at a table where we eat. If you think of the sin of Adam, Adam sins by taking fruit and putting, if you follow Augustine, and, and putting the forbidden fruit to the mouth that God kissed when he gave life. Instances woven all throughout Scripture bring lips and eating into relation. Ezekiel chapter 3, Psalm 119. And so all throughout Scripture, we, we don't have to say, I don't think Scripture says anything about this. The bride cries out, let him kiss me at the kisses of his mouth. For his name, the word of his name is more delightful than wine. The psalmist says, do not hide your law from me, for your word is my delight. In the Song of Songs, milk and honey are under your tongue, cries the beloved. The psalmist cries out, your law is sweeter than honey in the comb. And we moderns shake our heads and go, yeah, I don't, I don't see a connection here. Right? Fools that we are. Finally, and I'll just pa brush past this quickly, if you're looking at the notes, the scripture citations for the next section, touch, touch, and coverings, You'll notice that none of them have really much to say about kissing or the mouth or the lips. I just want us to pause here and you can go back and look at the scripture verses I gave you and um, reflect and email me and say I'm wrong or something. But the way in which a kiss has to relate to touching and covering and glory. What the kiss does is touch and in touching is touched in return. It's a kind of, as, as an act, it's, a, uh, it's, it's the opening of a veil. There's no barrier such an act not only unites two persons, it covers them each in the other person's glory. Right? When you're kissing, think of the, the sculpture by Rodin. The two lovers are covered by each other's glory. They don't care who gazes on them. The living Christ, who is the radiance of the Father, comes and touches us and is touched by us. Christ comes in the flesh to touch and cover our flesh in his glory. Thomas is instructed to touch his Lord. Our God is the one who came in the flesh to be touched. Yahweh, we must be serious, is kissable. Bernard of Clairvaux says that Christ, as a matter of fact, is himself the kiss, the union of God and man. Robert Jensen on this point is particularly incisive. If bodily love can, quote, if bodily love can be an appointed image of union with God, then we may not suppose that love comes becomes purer or nobler by disembodiment. If there is such a thing as love 
that needs no touching. It is not this love that in the song mirrors the love between Israel's God and his people. Whatever may be true of the gods of the religions or the philosophers. Just as my eyes were made to behold the uh, end quote. So just as my eyes were made to behold the Lord, my body was made to feast at his table, my hands to labor in his kingdom, just as my voice was made to sing his praises. My lips were made to kiss the sun and set an example for the kings of the earth. The kiss creates a cleft in the rock of the beloved, which covers the lover in glory on the mountaintop of love. We can extend this general anatomy of a biblical kiss into our reading of the major kinds of kissing in the Bible. Doing some philematological typology. There are, firstly, fatherly and motherly kisses, kisses shared between parents and children. Going again to Genesis 2.17 as the kind of prototypical kiss, God the Father breathes life and bestows the kiss of life on Adam. It is this, I think, which works to frame the kiss of blessing given by Isaac to Jacob in Genesis 27, breathing the covenant into him. Jacob is a new Adam breathed on by a new father. Christ is the final Adam, the true Israel, who has the Father's blessing, the kiss of the Father's affection. Christ is also the perfect Son who returns the Father's kiss, just as Joseph returns to his father and kisses Jacob in Genesis 46 and 50. So also the church is the new daughter, a new Ruth who clings to Mother Israel and kisses her, just as Ruth in chapter 1 remained faithful to Naomi and inherits the covenant blessing. The fatherly kiss can not only bestow life, the fatherly kiss can resurrect life. Elisha, a father in Israel, stretches himself out on the dead son of the widow, mouth to mouth, hand to hand, and breathes in him twice. And the breath of life returns to the boy, and he returns him to his mother. Just like when the father of the prodigal sees his son returning a long way off, runs to him and gives him a handshake. No. He runs to him and he kisses him. This can be preached. You are the widow's son. Yahweh has Elisha'd you and given you the kiss of life. You are the prodigal whom the father has run out to meet. The dead are raised and the lost things are found with a kiss. Fathers and mothers, when you, uh, and this can be applied, uh, there's a a typology is always applicable. Fathers and mothers, when you kiss your children, kiss them in a way that bestows the blessing of God. Your children are the Jacobs and Ruths God has given you to carry on the kingdom. They will inherit the promise and they will enter the lands that you cannot enter. Kiss them this way. And when you meet your children in their death and their rebellion and their transgressions, run to them. They are your prodigals, and kiss them. Children, when you kiss your parents, honor them. They are your Naomi's and your Jacob's. Kiss them in a way that you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. There are also nuptial kisses. We're told explicitly in Ephesians 5 that marriage has its origin and its fulfillment in the love of Christ and the church. Christ is the lover whom the bride, the church, longs for, and she cries out, let him kiss me. And the, the good news of the gospel, one of the great good news of the gospel, is not merely that 
God's going to answer our cry, let the Messiah come to me. It's better than that. It's that he desires that too. The bride cries out in song 1-2, let him kiss me. And Jesus cries out in the garden in John 17, Father, I desire that those you have given me would be with me where I am and see my glory. I think we so often think about slinking into the back of the wedding supper of the Lamb. We conceive of God's grace like somebody where you show up late for dinner or you weren't expected and they uncomfortably say, oh, I think we have enough. We'll scoot a chair in for you. Most of us live our lives expecting to have a a chair scooted in for us unannounced at the wedding supper of the Lamb. No, you are not merely welcome. You are wanted. Just as Christ is the kiss, so also the church, his body is a kiss. The church is the place where, once again, Psalm 85 finds fulfillment. Heaven and earth meet in the church. Justice and peace kiss in the church. Pablo Moret reminds us that it is precisely what the kiss is. It's a union of two things so that in kissing, they themselves become the kiss. This is why, for instance, we do not look at uh, Rodin's sculpture and say, this sculpture is called Two People Touching Mouths, right? This sculpture is called The Kiss. They have become one. Man and woman, to seal their nuptials in Christ's church, kiss because, precisely, that is what a nuptial kiss is. It joins two people in the presence of God. For this reason shall man leave his father and mother. This preaches too. Husbands and wives, remember this. In a culture where kissing has been relegated to mere foreplay or mere emotion, the kiss does what sex cannot. It remains. The kiss precedes love. The kiss continues in love. And kiss continues long after our bodies are worn out for the kind of uh, embodied love that I think our culture thinks is the only way to love. Following spouses even unto death, when Christ's words are fulfilled and we become like the angels, neither taken nor given in marriage, the kiss will remain. Husbands and wives kiss like those who are the beloved of God. There are also brotherly kisses, denoting their fraternal sharing of life and their unity. Therefore, when Jacob meets Esau, the two share a kiss of peace. Joseph, when he weeps and reveals himself to his brothers and proclaims his forgiveness, the kiss is the gesture that proclaims that what they had meant for evil, the Lord had used for good. Moses returns from exile and meets his brother Aaron in the wild places. Their kiss is a sign of brotherhood and confraternity for Yahweh's battle against Egypt. Jonathan and David share a kiss, which marks their relationship as something other than client and patron. They become friends and dear brothers. So also, typologically, Christ is the true Israel, who greets his brothers who once hated him with the kiss of peace. Christ is the Joseph, whom his brothers rejected and threw into the earth and stripped him of his tunic who, rising in glory, greets us with forgiveness. Christ is the high captain, our Jonathan, our David, who kisses us and tells us that we are no longer servants, but friends. 
and that a friend lays down his life for his friends. I'll speak here to pastors in particular. Fellow pastors, I know your lot. I know it well. Uh, I am one of you. I know your loneliness, the feeling of general friendlessness that pastor has even among friends. First, know this, Christ has called you friend, and he shares with you the kiss of peace. Secondly, the first place to implement anything from my talk is in beginning to share the kiss of peace with the elders and deacons and presbyters in your church. The fellow pastors in your church and in your city. Kiss your brothers. Let your people see you do it. And stop believing the devil's lies that you are alone in ministry. Kissing has to do with worship. Pharaoh tells Joseph in Genesis 40 that all of Egypt will be placed under him. And we translate it, Egypt will obey him or submit to him. The word there is all of Egypt will kiss him. That, that kiss is the kiss of fealty. When Samuel anoints David, when he messiahs him, he kisses him as a sign of fealty and allegiance. In 1 Kings 19, Yahweh tells the despairing Elijah that there are 7,000 whose allegiance is still to King Yahweh who have not kissed Baals. Hosea, in chapter 13, condemns Israel for kissing the idol calves. We kiss our kings and we kiss the image of our God. This is what the woman in Luke chapter 7 gets right and Simon misses. Jesus is the new Joseph to whom all Israel, which has herself become an Egypt, owes its kisses. Jesus is the new David, the anointed one, the Messiah on whose lips grace is poured and whose lips deserve our fealty. Jesus is the image of God. And it is to him and not to the idols of the earth that our reverent kisses are due. You bear that image. There are also false kisses. You can think of Lot's kisses, which are just a subterfuge to scout out uh, Jacob's camp to see who took his idols. The kisses of Absalom and 2 Samuel, which deceive and steal, is what the medieval ethicists call dissimilitude, which are uh, only there to manipulate and coerce. There's the false kisses of Joab that he gives to Amasa. Come here, brother, he says, and kisses him even as he stabs him in 2 Samuel 20. The greatest of all the false kisses is that of Judas. He betrays the kiss with a kiss. Think of all that I have just said about the kiss, all that it means and affects in God's world. Judas, of all signs and gestures at hand, betrays Christ with a kiss. This is also preachable. This is where the Spirit can move and convict us of sin. Where are our kisses, like Lot's kisses, used to manipulate, to gain leverage? Where are our kisses used merely as the price of admission to relationships? Where are our kisses, like Orpah, kisses used to close off, to finish early the painful stories we wish we were not a part of? Where are our kisses, like Absalom, Coercive, subversive, regicidal, drawing the love of people from their properly ordered object. Where are our kisses? Joab kisses. A thin and empty gesture veneered over hate and violence. Where are our kisses? Judas kisses. Where do our kisses twist the very gift of life 
and union and breath and lip and speech and feast in his rebellion. Wherever we have thus erred, may God have mercy and do a great work in us. The theme of this conference draws on the idea of Benedict XVI, that a Christian social order is a civilization of love. And I am here to suggest that a civilization of love is a civilization that shares a holy kiss and whose other kisses are anchored in that holy kiss. There are five epistles which end with an apostolic command to share a holy kiss, to greet one another with a holy kiss, to pass the kiss of peace. Romans 16, 16. 1 Corinthians 16, 20. 2 Corinthians 13, 12. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, 5, 26. And 1 Peter 5, 14. This means simply what we've been doing here at Theopolis during the peace. We kiss one another as... Br- I'll say, the historic practice was also men to men, women to women, unless you were members of the same household. I'm not arguing for, right now, anything more than that. Just brothers and brothers, sisters and sisters, and members of the same household. We kiss this way because, as uh, Pablo Moret reminds us, I quoted him earlier, what the kiss does is make two person one. We kiss one another in Christ, for Christ has made the two one, Jew and Gentile, slave and free. In a world of great division, racial, ecclesial, national, the kiss of peace proclaims that we are one in the Spirit. Bonhoeffer tells us that, quote, Christ made the church, and in it our brother a blessing to us. And now our brothers stand in Christ's stead. Before him, my brother in Christ, I need no longer to dissemble. For him alone in the whole world, I dare to be the sinner that I am. Through him, our brother has become Christ for us in the power and authority Christ has given him. Therefore, receiving our brother or sister as Christ, when we kiss our brother in Christ, we receive them as the one in whom Christ dwells. Here is my Lord. His spirit dwells in the person of my brother. When I kiss my brother with the kiss of peace, I do homage to my Lord. Paul Griffiths notes that to kiss any single member of the beloved's body is to kiss all of her because she is fully present in each, each being constituted by its relation to all. If I, if I kiss my wife's elbow, I have kissed Rachel. I kiss a part of my wife, I kiss all of her. Thus, when we share the holy kiss with particular members of the body of Christ, we kiss the entire body of Christ. It is a Catholic and universal act. When I, for instance, kiss Brian Motes during the passing of the peace, I am kissing Christians across the world. I'm sharing the kiss of peace. Just as when we come to the Lord's table, we come to the Lord's table with all who on that day have gathered at the Lord's table. This is, for instance, what happens in Acts 20, 37. Paul shares with Christ in his life and death. And when he, uh, he fellowships in the sufferings of Christ, he puts on Christ. And so as he goes to his doom in Ephesus, the Christians in Ephesus cry over and uh, 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 shower Paul's body with kisses. They weep over it, for it has become to them a living member of Christ's body, filling up what is lacking. 
We kiss before coming to the altar in obedience to the command of Christ that we should leave our sacrifice burning on the altar to make sure that we are at peace with our brother. By it, the Spirit puts an end to rivalry, ends our brother against brother, sweeps away the sin which crouches at Cain's door. Sharing the kiss of peace in the communion liturgy prepares us for the table. It strengthens the social element of the Eucharist. My lips have touched my brother in Christ before they've touched the chalice of Christ. We share one life and one cup. We do not merely drink from Christ's life. We share in one life together and walk away from the table carrying one another's burdens, as Paul says in Galatians. Christian kissing should be hopeful kissing, not only because all kissing is hopeful. When you kiss, you, it's an act of hope. You hope that the kiss lasts, hopeful that the kissing leads to something in the relationship, hopeful that this is the promise of glorious things to come, etc. Christian kissing is hopeful because the Christian future is marked by the kissing of the Son. Kissing is a martyr thing to do. It bears witness that our lives are a part of one story and that our future is a part of one kingdom. This is why, if you recall, as we've all read, in the story of the martyrdom of Felicity and Perpetua, as they're about to, as they're sort of, the people that are killing them are finishing up killing them, their last great act is to publicly proclaim their unity in Christ. They share the kiss of peace and go to meet their Lord. Those who share a holy kiss are those who kiss the Son. Our kiss proclaims His kingdom as we await his return and our union with the saints and martyrs. Just think, one day, really and truly, you will be welcomed by martyrs and saints and angels. You will, in the body, rise in your resurrected self before the Lord of hosts and his hosts. And in that welcome, you will not be offered a handshake. For you are not there by merit of a savvy business arrangement. You will be offered a holy kiss by those who have kissed the Son. You are already a part of that great fellowship. Proclaim it by sharing the kiss that marks us as the people of the Lord of the kiss, who is himself the kiss, as St. Bernard has suggested. Heaven and earth have kissed one another, and the name of that kiss is Jesus the Messiah. Therefore, dearly beloved, brothers and sisters in Christ, hear the word of Scripture. And, as Dr. Lightheart puts it, pucker up. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. There will be no questions. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, uh, when Elijah's despairing, Yahweh says, there are many who, and he doesn't say, there are many who still believe that God created the world in seven days. He says, there are many who have not kissed Baal and have therefore united themselves to him. You can correct me if I'm, if I'm misunderstanding the question a little bit. I, I think, uh, and I tried to do this a little bit with the typology. I, I think that people who are critics of typology Say like, oh, that's nice. I'm glad you're like having some, playing some fun literature games. 
Uh, but like we got like the Bible's got to be applicable. And I, I actually think typology becomes really applicable. And so I think, how do you keep a kiss holy? I think typology teaches us how we should be kissing in ways that are holy in each of the respective relationships of our lives. I should kiss my children the way that Elijah kissed the widow's son. I should kiss my children the way that, with the same kind of blessing, giving, you know, son, you stand on my shoulders, you will enter the land that I will not, you're the giant killer, um, I'm going to die, mom and I are going to die in the wilderness, this sort of thing. I think allowing that typology to inform how we conduct ourselves when we kiss uh, is good. And I think, how do we keep a kiss holy? I think that having the kiss of peace back in the church's liturgy um, informs the way that we live. You know, you find yourself being shaped by God's worship. And so it becomes... Uh, I think there's some people that put too much weight on liturgy. Like, if you just have the right liturgy, then all of a sudden we'll all like, be holy and we'll never sin. Um, and if we just architect the perfect liturgy, we'll, it'll form our inward habits and we'll never sin. I'm not sold on that so much. I do think the liturgy can affect the way that we behave. And so I think the way that I'm formed liturgically, but if I'm kissing my brother every Sunday before the Eucharist, it's going to be really hard for me, I think, to hate him, right? I think it's going to be really hard for me to uh, kiss my brother and then uh, turn around and kiss another man in a way that's not brotherly, that's sort of wrong, uh, because I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to be jarring. And I think that's where, when we aren't jarred by these things, like Jude, the Judas kiss, right? I think that's where you get that Latin word addictus, addiction. There's something that you've been given over to. You're violating a habituated way that the liturgy is supposed to frame. I don't know if that's helpful. I've just said some things. Yes? Two questions, Mark. Uh, one, do you think that when we get back to our churches, we should do this? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yes. And I, I, it's kind of a joke question, but my, my real question is... Oh. I, I took. I was. I had a serious answer for your for your joke. Serious question is: Are you doing this in your church? And tell us how it was received and how you went about. Yeah, yeah. I'll answer the first one first. Okay. Uh, the, sorry, the second one first. Um, I am a hypocrite and a liar. Um, the, the second one. No, uh, we don't do it at All Saints um, yet. I would like to do it, and then I'll answer one with that. I, I think that this is something that because of how knee jerk it is, uh, I think that. This to me is something like uh, wanting to chant the psalms or wanting to wear vestments or wanting to, uh, I was going to say the sacraments, but I, I think if, if you're not doing the sacraments, you need to do that right away, and if people are offended by them, that, I, that's not on you. Um, but I think like uh, other things, like the sharing of the kiss of peace and tithing, I think there's a way to be pastoral with this application. And so... Though it's not quite analogous, I think something like when somebody comes to me and says, okay, we're struggling, we feel bad, we're torn up by shame, we're not tithing members of this church, Father Mark. Uh, walking them through, okay, the goal isn't changed, the commandment isn't changed, the goal is 10% or more, tithes and offerings of everything you give. Let me as your pastor walk you towards living in obedience, right? Um, and I think that with things like passing the, key, the there I go again, passing the kiss of peace, uh, that walking, shepherding your church through this is, is the really messy, good work that pastors are called to do. And so uh, we're going to begin uh, that journey uh, at our church, beginning with, again, among the clergy. Um, 
And part of, part of the research here was, okay, if I'm going to really move my church in this direction, I need to think through the why behind some of these things. Yeah, right. Well, and, and I, I wonder too. There's, there's a piece to talk about Hawaii. In Hawaiian culture, we often we it's a culture that still retains in most settings, uh, it, it, um, in most settings in Hawaii, uh, there's still an appropriate we call it hone hone, uh, like a uh, just a, a salutary kiss, um, like a, a salute, a greeting. Um, and so I'm I'm going to be working in a culture that's already going to be more open, I think, to the idea. I was talking to a native Hawaiian friend of mine, like, uh, what do you say in Hawaii? Kanaka ma'oli, like, child of the land. Um, and I was telling him what I was going to go present on, and he got teary-eyed. He was like, whoa. I, wow. I, I never thought I would hear a white guy say that uh, we should be greeting each other uh, this way. Um, and so I think there's cultures that are yeah, more open to it. I imagine if you were, probably if you are a church planter in like an intensely Hispanic neighborhood, probably, there's probably still some of that old world greeting that might be useful to you, fruitful to you. Yes? Uh, two quick things. We did this in the church I pastored in uh, Moscow. Uh, once we introduced Yeah, I think we're, part of that is, I think there's some reasons that God made it this way, but God, I mean, part of that is the bravery of just taking God at his word. God, God, God said do it. He attached importance to this. And I think there's blessings attached to doing what God has told us. This is going to sound wild, but I think there's, I think there's blessings attached to obeying God. Um, and so I think there's, a, there's blessings that come. Um, and I think there's also, I don't want to get too, there's, there's ways that this can kind of be unhelpful or, or cringy maybe, but I made the joke about sort of getting the life of my brothers in the fellows program on me. I think there's also, we live in this just siloed, People write all the time, our culture is so lonely, isolated, blah, blah. And I, I, I think of the idea of approaching another brother in Christ. And, you know, there's all these things. You're, you're, you're sharing body warmth, right? Like you're, the, the warmth of your body is getting on them. Uh, you are remaining with them. There's a, there's a sharing of smells. I mean, if, you, if you're kissing, there's minimally an exchange of like sort of bodily person, right? You're, you're actually getting one another on each other. I think that it's the, this is why God has made it what it is. It, um, it's carrying your brother with you into the Lord's table in a real way. And that feels, that, that is good. Uh, there's a question up. Yes, James Jordan. Yeah. So the, the, uh, the first question, yeah, I agree. I, I, um, things, things were, the circumstances of church worship were different 150 years ago where we sat on opposite sides of, uh, of the church, and that made it simpler. You're not, trying to, you're not passing over people. Passing, you're not kissing your brother and then giving your brother's wife a weird handshake. And then, you know what I mean? Like, and you're, oh, that's going to be a shaka, you know. Um, uh, and that makes it simpler. Again, I think that's... Um, Far, I'm, I'm, I would say I think that's helpful if churches do that. I'm far more a fan of churches doing whatever is necessary-ish uh, to, in order to restore the practice. And if what makes it necessary is splitting up, great. Um, I'm, I, if I have chips, I'm not going to throw half my chips in the sitting separately 
and half in the kissing. I'm going to throw all my chips in the passing the kiss of peace. Uh, with regard to the kissing on the lips of the cheek, uh, I think somebody better than me can answer that. I, I think the general idea is that the, the kiss should be passed with the lips. Whether it's received on the lips or the cheek, I think is um, adiaphora, maybe. Maybe that's a disappointing answer. I don't know. Maybe half of you guys wanted me to be bold and say, the lips, you know, all, I, don't, I don't know how much that's um, of utmost importance. Just grab him and kiss him. Uh, um, I, you know, I think, uh, <laughs> hey, welcome. <laughs> you jump in the deep end. Uh, no, I think, uh, yeah, what I'm going to say, I don't want to sound, I'll just say it. Uh, I, I think that, sort of like what Jeff was talking about, I, to me it's strange, and this is maybe just being in Hawaii or something, uh, where we have like a hospitality culture already, the idea that you would walk into a church and nobody would say, hi, Welcome to church, new person. We are so glad you're here. We pray every week for people to walk through these doors. You are God's answer to prayer. Can I show you a seat? This is my wife and kids. Do you have plans after lunch? Here's our service. Do you have a hymnal book? Right? Like the idea that we're just like, there's somebody. Like that, that, I don't, I, if that's happening at your church, stop it. Right? Uh, the, the idea of greeting, yeah. So I think saying, like, hey, you'll notice that when we, when we greet each other, uh, we share a kiss of peace on the cheek. Um, you don't have to do that. And even historically, the kiss of peace was never shared uh, with, with uh, the unbaptized or with people that were still catechumenates. Um, I just think, yeah, add that to the greeting in my mind. Add that to the things that the person who greets you at the door should normally already at hand. And I think we've knocked on our Orthodox friends a lot today. Okay? Uh, I'm going to say this is one thing that uh, my experience with the Eastern Orthodox churches uh, does really well. There's usually somebody at the door that says, hi, welcome. Uh, you're not going to understand much of what we do. That's okay. Can I get you one of the two liturgies that we have sort of printed out and you can follow along or stand with me and my family, right? There's a, they, at least in my experience, that's been something that they do really well, is walking you into what is going to be a very different experience. And I think churches need to do that. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.